right, everybody. Welcome, everyone. This is the That's Criminal podcast with yours truly, John Stamp. That's Criminal is where we talk true crime from the case file to crime fiction and everything in between. Today, I'm, I'm getting to chat with a retired police officer and author Rod Sadler. Rod worked as a police officer in mid-Michigan for 30 years before retiring in 2012. And after going to college um, during his career, he uh, kind of fell in love with uh, writing um, as that's the same way I fell into it um, and found that his, uh, his niche was going to be true crime. So he started researching his first book titled uh, To Hell I Must Go after he found a story of an 1897 murder in Williamson, Michigan. And it turned out to be a case that his great grandfather, who was sheriff at the time, uh, was an integral part of. Uh, which is a very interesting, uh, interesting family, uh, family fact. Uh, in his second book titled The Slayer Waits, uh, it covers the brutal murder of an elderly couple near Stockbridge, Michigan. And it also follows the journey of the killer's appeal all the way to the United States Supreme Court. In his latest work, Killing Women, he documents the East Lansing serial killer, Don Miller, and discusses the plea deal that Miller received in exchange for turning over the locations of the bodies of his three victims. Miller is set to be released in 2031. So, uh, Rod, I appreciate you uh, you come to talk with me. I've uh, I, looking at all of your books from the uh, you know the old historical uh, turn of the century murder to uh, the uh, Mr. Miller's case that, that goes on in the 70s. I want to talk about all of them, so I'm going to let you decide where we start. Oh, great, great. Uh, we'll start with my first one. We'll go right in order. Uh, it, my first book is titled To Hell I Must Go. And uh, I, I, once you hear the plot or, or the, the storyline, uh, you'll, you'll get this joke. Uh, the, the original title was going to be Head of the Table, um, and, and you'll chuckle at that later. Um, and I'll tell you how I came up with the actual title for the book. But uh, it, To Hell I Must Go details uh, a murder in Williamston, Michigan in 1897. Now, I grew up in Williamston. Um, it's a small town of about 2,000 people back in, in uh, the late 1800s. You know, there's probably, uh, I don't know, four or five, 600 people maybe that lived there. Um, and it was a, a, a small town that uh, was growing. The railroad had just been put through uh, a couple years before. And on the edge of the of town, on the east end of town, there was a, a, a shack, if you will. Uh, these people lived in squalor. It was Alfred Haney and his wife, Martha, and his mother, or Martha's mother-in-law, Mariah. And Mariah and Martha did not get along. Uh, as a matter of fact, they hated each other. Uh, Martha had some uh, psychiatric problems and uh, Alfred knew it. Um, uh, he actually went by the name Alfie around town and he knew that his wife needed help. And so he had set up an appointment for her to see the town doctor. And uh, I think he set it up on a Thursday night and that he was gonna take her, the doctor agreed to see her uh, Friday morning. And so uh, on Friday morning, she, she knew something was up. Um, he had told her, hey, we're going to go see uh, Doc so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, he's going to check you out. And she loathed that idea. She did not want to go. 
And so on Friday morning, she convinced him that she was fine. Uh, he'd never seen her smile like she, like she was smiling on Friday morning. And so she suggested, hey, why don't we go tomorrow? I'm feeling fine today. And so he had to go out and, and get some work for the day because he had to support her and, and, her, and his mother. And so uh, he left for the day and Martha and Mariah were kind of hanging around the house and Mariah was doing some, uh, some housework. And uh, next to the house was a, what they call a stave factory. They made barrels and they shipped them all over the, the United States. And the workers at the stave factory, they were used to seeing Martha and Mariah argue because they hated each other. It was no big deal to see them yelling at each other or hear them screaming and such. And so uh, on this particular day, uh, they got into a fight over a picture frame. Uh, Martha had taken a picture off the wall. It had a picture of Mariah's husband from the Civil War. And she took the picture out and she was going to put a picture of her own three kids in there that were uh, she didn't have custody of. Um, and this infuriated Mariah. And the two of them got into a fight. And somehow Martha got out into the front, uh, the front yard, if you will. And uh, so Mariah locked the front door. Martha went around to the back of the house. She got an axe and she came back around to the front door. And she began hacking away at the front door. And once she got through that front door, the fight was on. Uh, Mariah yelled murder loud enough for the, the guys at the stave factory to hear her. Um, but, you know, they, they'd heard that before. You know, they'd heard him arguing before. So they didn't pay any attention to it, really. Martha swings the axe and she connects with, uh, with Mariah uh, the side of her head and knocks her down. And, and Mariah is now dazed to the point where she's about to pass out. And Martha takes that ax and with three um, swings of the ax, she beheads her mother-in-law, uh, completely severs her head. She then picks up the head, takes it to the, uh, the kitchen, which is the next room, and sets it at her husband's place setting and puts a knife and fork on either side of it. Now, can you imagine the horror of walking into a room and seeing your mother's head? I, I, I mean, yeah, it's a, I can't. It's a distinctly uh, personal touch. Yes, yes. <laughs> aimed a very at, personal aimed touch. at the husband. Yeah. yeah, and I'll tell you what, you can't find a centerpiece like that at the Hobby Lobby. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so then she drags the, the headless corpse now um, out into the kitchen and she gets uh, some kerosene from a, a lamp in the living room and she pours it over the body and then she gets into the oven where they have hot coals because that's how they cooked back then. And uh, she takes these hot coals in a pan and sets them between the legs of Mariah's headless body and the body begins to smolder. And she goes into the bedroom and the guys at the stave factory, uh, in the meantime, the guys at the stave factory, they're oblivious to what's going on inside the house. Alfred comes home for lunch and he walks in and he sees his wife's uh, handiwork. 
he sees his, his mother's head on a plate on the dining room table. And this is a shack, remember. Um, so he screams, he, he takes off, he's got to find the town marshal. Um, in the meantime, the guys at the state factory see him run out and they heard him scream and they, they start to see smoke coming out from the windows. So they think the, uh, Alfie's house is on fire. They have no idea of, of the carnage inside. So they go to the rear window of the house and they start throwing uh, uh, buckets of water, like a bucket brigade through the, they break out a window and they're throwing water. One of the guys is like, hey, I'm gonna attack this from inside. I'll take a bucket of water around, go around the front. And he notices that the door has been chopped off the hinges and he walks in, there's blood everywhere. And he sees the head on the table. And just about that time, Martha comes out of the bedroom in her, uh, I guess her, what they call, uh, oh, I can't think of the name of it now, uh, what they called underwear back then. Like the uh, night clothes or something. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so she sees him. She turns around. She goes back in, puts on a dress, comes out, and he's in shock. I mean, he's looking at, at this smoldering body uh, that he puts water on. He sees the head. He sees Martha. <laughs> And she comes back out of the bedroom, sits on the living room uh, couch and begins to uh, peel wallpaper off the wall. And oh. yeah, and he's like, oh, time to exit stage left. Uh, so he gets out of there. Uh, Martha, in the meantime, leaves the house and she's, by the time the local uh, marshal gets to town uh, or over to the house with Alfie, she's in the backyard digging wildly with her, with her bare hands. Now, there's a lot of speculation, you know, what, was she going to try to bury the body? Um, you know, what exactly her intentions were, but the, the village marshal goes up to her and she admits, yeah, I, I just killed my mother-in-law. So he cuffs her and has somebody stand guard at the house because the, the fire's out now. And he takes her down to the local uh, uh, lockup at city hall. Uh, and that building still exists today. Uh, the right. jail cell is gone, but um, but that building still exists. And uh, so they, they notify the Ingham County Sheriff, who was my grandfather, uh, my great-great-grandfather, I'm sorry. Uh, he was elected sheriff in 1896 in Ingham County. And so he has to take the train from the county seat into uh, the state capital of Lansing, catch another train eastbound, uh, to Williamston, you know, so it's a wow. rather lengthy trip because yeah, he knows a, he's going to have to bring her back. That's a big um, jurisdiction. Can, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's probably 600 square miles. Wow. So uh, he gets, uh, he gets to town. Um, he has a couple local doctors talk to her and she says, yeah, I killed her. I stomped on her with my feet. And he says, and then I cut her head off and they ask her, why'd you do it? She says, cause uh, my mother told me to. My mother said if I didn't kill her, she would kill me. Well, her mother had been dead for seven years. So uh, she obviously had some psychological problems. Yeah, uh, that's so, a break. yeah. So they take her back to um, back over to Mason, which is the county seat. And, and uh, my great great grandfather was concerned that she might try to commit suicide. So he slept next to the cell. Uh, that she was in and she would dance around and sing this little song 
uh, and I don't know what the tune was, but the words were, I can't go to heaven, to hell I must go, murderers don't go to heaven, so that's where I must go. And when I heard that little ditty, I thought, wow, there's the title to the book right there, uh, yeah. instead yeah. of using head of the table. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so in, in the meantime, uh, the following Monday, um, she is taken to uh, Lansing on a train. And she goes before a circuit court judge and he has impanels uh, three doctors to uh, assess her sanity. And after some interviews and a briefing on what she had done, it was clear that Martha was insane. And that afternoon uh, they signed a document, all three of them uh, saying that she was in fact insane. And the judge sentenced her to the home for the criminally insane in Ionia, Michigan, uh, whereupon my great-great-grandfather took her by train up to Ionia, which is probably a, a several-hour trip by train. Um, and that's the story of Martha Haney and, and how she decapitated her mother-in-law and how my great-great-grandfather was involved. There's a, a, two interesting things about this. Uh, one is that um, uh, I went to the uh, Archives of Michigan uh, in Lansing, and they have the original court file still, uh, it, you know, preserved there. And they brought it out to me. It was just like eight pages of documents. And one of those was a handwritten statement, the original handwritten statement that my great great grandfather uh, prepared, um, like, a, like his report about yeah. what he saw when he went into the house. And then there was a, a handwritten statement from the witness who went in first and found all the carnage too. And then wow. there was the original letter signed by the three doctors. So it was really a fascinating um, find for me. And it really verified all of the newspaper stuff that I had found about the murder too. Uh, the, yeah. the other interesting thing, and this I just found out last week, this is hot off the press. Um, I had always tried to uh, find uh, a relative of Martha Haney's, you know, uh, track down a distant relative. And I just couldn't do it. I just, there, there just wasn't enough information. So I get a message last week uh, on Facebook from a friend and he says, Hey, I think I'm related to Martha Haney. He said, I think that was my great, great aunt. He, wow. And his, his mother had just passed away and, and, so he had found this out. So I got on Ancestry and instead of tracking from Martha down, I tracked from him backward to her mm -hmm. and verified it. You know who he is? Who? He's my barber. Oh. He's been <laughs> cutting been... my hair for 20 years. You've been looking for is, him forever. <laughs> is that weird? That's, that's so, the weird little coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So next time I go there, I think I'm going to avoid the straight razor. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's uh, the uh, the analogy of, of that book is the uh, the Michigan uh, Lizzie Borden kind of. Yeah. 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 So that was a marketing uh, ploy on my part. Uh, yeah. I thought mm -hmm. she really is Michigan's version of Lizzie Borden. Uh, yeah, that's uh, did they uh, did you ever stumble across any uh, any um, any statements from uh, the, from Alfie, the husband? Like because um, it's a it's a very interesting to me to I mean, they, you know, people with different conditions can be very manipulative because they get used to that kind of treatment and they're ready for it. You know, they can spot, spot that coming, the trip to the doctor coming a mile away. Sure. Um, did, did he, it's just uh, the way she had it together in the morning. Um, 
what would did you ever find any statements based on him like showing history or anything like that no um the only thing that i could gather about alfie was was taken from old newspaper articles um there was nothing in the court file that i found um i know that he did remarry um several years later and uh, well uh, let me back up uh let's say he cohabitated with a woman um before getting married and that was illegal back then and both he and his uh, cohabitor were both arrested and did time in the Detroit House of Corrections um, before they eventually got married. So, yeah, he um, did the time. Might as well get married. Yeah, I guess. I guess. <laughs> Jeez. So, yeah, Man. it's it's an interesting story, and I came across it accidentally. I was doing uh, genealogy research about my great great grandfather, just looking for newspaper articles, you know, that mentioned his name as as mm -hmm. the sheriff, and I came across this article. Uh, and the title of the article was Awful Deed. And, and so I started reading it and I saw my great, great grandfather's name and I'm like, holy crap, this is a beheading. Um, so it, yeah. And I thought, well, wow, this will make a great book. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that's why I love, I love doing the research on, on that stuff, that turn of the century, getting into the uh, 1800s is the, just the, exactly that everything from the headlines to the, uh, to the narrative put into newspaper articles it that has an art to it that is fallen away it, it's oh just, absolutely absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 that's amazing yeah that's that's great and then and it uh i can ask you about this after we talk about your other two books but i would like you to walk me through your methodology and i and i say that because uh yeah i've, I've done my research i got i went to grad school had to I, I fell into writing the same way you did i just took all the time i spent researching and writing and put it into fiction after I got done. Oh, okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, but the methodology of true crime is something I think everybody always has that question in the back of their mind uh, because of the, just the amount of digging that you have to do. So I, I mean, I can imagine the archives you got to dig through for um, to go back to 1897, but also even uh, talking uh, Don Miller's case. I mean, you know, case files are probably still alive, maybe FOIAs or something like that. So at some point I'd like to ask you about your methodology. Oh, absolutely. Sure. Sure. Um, but yeah, if you want, if, since we're, uh, since we're on the, on the books, when I talk about the Slayer, the, uh, the Slayer awaits. Sure. Sure. That uh, this case is from 1955. Uh, the name of my book is called a Slayer Waits. And uh, I can remember as a kid, uh, this occurred uh, just outside the uh, city of Stockbridge, which is in Ingham County, just uh, literally, I don't know, uh, 15 or 20 minutes from Williamston, uh, where the, the first book that I wrote was about. Uh, and in Stockbridge um, in 1955, uh, there was an elderly couple and uh, he was a retired chicken farmer. And uh, he and his wife lived alone. They're, they had adult children uh, that didn't live on their farm. And uh, every Saturday uh, he worked uh, part-time um, in retirement at a, a small um, factory in, in uh, Mason, Michigan, which is the county seat that I had just discussed. And so uh, I, on Friday, on, on a Friday uh, in early September, 1955, uh, he had uh, gone to work. In the meantime, um, Jackson, Michigan, which is located uh, 15 or 20 minutes south of Stockbridge, uh, is uh, the, 
had the world's largest walled prison, Jackson Prison. And there was an inmate there who was doing time for uh, breaking and entering an armed robbery. And he was made a trustee, uh, which allowed him, he was actually housed outside in like a barracks outside the walled prison. And he had the uh, privilege as a trustee of taking a dump truck around to uh, various farms and picking up uh, trash and, and, and food scraps, you know, uh, farm products, stuff like that, taking them back uh, so that the other inmates could use those to feed the pigs that they raised inside the prison. And uh, the guy's name was Neely Buchanan. And Buchanan uh, had asked for parole and he was denied and it pissed him off. And so he decided next chance he gets, he's out. So on an early Friday morning, he loads up the, uh, the dump truck and he heads out to, on his route to pick up trash or, or food scraps or whatever. And uh, he gets to Stockbridge and he runs out of gas with this prison truck. And so he leaves it by the school and he starts walking. And he's walking along, a, a, a he's walking parallel to a state highway, M52. And he's walking back in the woods so nobody will see him because he's in prison garb. And uh, he walks all day and he comes across the Herrick farm, Howard and Myra Herrick. And so he decides to bed down in the barn. Well, in the barn is this automobile. It belongs to Howard. That's where Howard parks his car. He parks it in the barn. Well, Neely decides I'm going to, I'm going to wait here and I'm going to steal that car in the morning when he comes out. So he takes a, a, a block of uh, stump that, that Howard uses to slaughter the chickens and he puts it up in the rafters and his intention is to push it off when Howard comes in in the morning and then take the keys um, after Howard's you know killed or knocked out whatever um, take the keys to the car and steal it so he can further his escape so he misses his opportunity he sleeps in so to speak uh, he misses his opportunity. Howard comes out, takes the car, and heads to work. So Neely, rather than leave, he decides, I'm waiting for him to come back. He says, I'm, I'm going to take that car. So later that afternoon, Howard, with a, a brand new uniform from the company that he's working for, all folded next to, the, next to him in the front seat of his car, Neely's up in the barn, and he's looking, he's just, you know, looking at tools and stuff, killing time, waiting for Howard to come back with the car. And Howard surprises him. He doesn't hear him coming in. And Howard pulls in into the barn with the car and he sees Neely Buchanan standing there with a, with a hand grinder in his hand. And he says, uh, of course, Howard Herrick is uh, uh, surprised. And he says, uh, hey, what are you doing? And Neely says to him, hey, I was just curious if you wanted to sell this, this hand grinder. And Howard says, no. And as he starts to get out of the car, Howard's blind in, in his left eye. So he can't, he can't see the peripheral vision. And so he doesn't see Neely swing this uh, hand grinder at him. And he connects with the side of his head and knocks him out. He knocks Howard Herrick out. 
and, and so now that he's he's out cold, Neely starts rifling through his his uh, pockets for the car keys. Well, unbeknownst to him, the car keys fell under the car under some hay chafe. And so he can't find the car keys. But outside, Myra's working in the yard and she hears the commotion. So she goes into the barn and she confronts Neely, who's in prison garb and rifling through her husband's pockets, who's now bleeding and unconscious. And uh, so Neely attacks her. He's got, he grabs a ball peen hammer and he starts swinging it. And she is, she's able to fend off some, some blows, uh, but he finally connects and knocks her out. About that time, Howard wakes up and he starts getting up and Neely grabs that grinder and swings it again and connects and kills Howard dead right there. Um, kills him right there. He then thinks, he thinks that both Howard and Myra are both dead. And so he drags them over into the uh, uh, stacks of baled hay and he conceals their bodies under these bales of hay. He rips down the, the bottom of the uh, dashboard on this uh, DeSoto, hoping to hotwire it, but he can't because he doesn't know how. But he leaves his fingerprints. So what he does is he takes off his prison uniform. He grabs that, uh, that clean uniform of Howard's. He puts that on and he hitchhikes up, uh, catches a ride up to a little general store a couple miles up the road. Nobody thinks a thing of it. He goes in, um, he wants, he starts asking questions. Hey, uh, you know, where can I catch a bus? And somebody says, oh, you'll have to catch a bus over in Mason. So he hitches a ride over to Mason. He grabs a cab from Mason to Lansing, the state capital, and he grabs a bus to uh, New York City. And before the bodies are ever even found, three days later, he's already started a new life in New York City. Wow, that's a getaway. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The, the police, uh, the, the, the bodies are eventually found like three or four days later. They're found by family members and a detective from the sheriff's office. And the neighbor who lives across the street from him, uh, he felt really bad because the, he saw Howard, Howard had pulled into the gas station across from his house on Saturday and got gas and he exchanged some pleasantries with his buddy who owned this little gas station, this little mom and pop store. And uh, they said, what are you doing this weekend? And because it was a Labor Day weekend, he said, oh, we're, we're going to go out and see some cousins. And, and so Howard, he finishes filling up with gas. He pulls literally across the street into his driveway and pulls up behind the house into the barn. And shortly thereafter, uh, both uh, uh, Mr. Dosberg and his wife hear some screaming. And they think, oh, Howard's hard of hearing. They're both hard of hearing. They must have their TV up loud. Well, what he was listening to was Mrs. Herrick getting beaten to death in the oh, barn, man. screaming. Uh, and so he felt so bad about that that he started this reward. He, he got this reward together and he bought ads in all these uh, African-American uh, publications around the country because Neely Buchanan was black. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so 13 months later, after the murder, some guy in Baltimore recognizes Neely Buchanan from this wanted poster in the back of this uh, 
uh, African-American pulp fiction magazine called uh, Bronze Thrills. And he recognizes him. So he gets the, the local PD, the Baltimore Police Department, says, hey, I know where this guy is. Takes him to him. They arrest Neely Buchanan, who's using Howard Herrick's uh, driver's license because there's wow. no picture on it back in the 50s um, mm -hmm. and using his ID. And they fly him back to Michigan and he pleads guilty uh, to two counts of first degree murder. And within a week, uh, he's off to Jackson prison uh, to serve two life terms. So what happened was at back in the 50s, uh, a circuit court judge would take a, an inmate, uh, a defendant back into chambers with and it would just be the judge and the defendant. No court security, nobody. And the judge would discuss a guilty plea with them. You know, uh, you want to plead guilty? Yes. Tell me what you did. Um, and, and it was a common practice. There was nothing um, uh, covert about it. It was, it was accepted. That's, that's how things were done. And so uh, they brought Neely Buchanan back out. And the judge did not tell Buchanan before he was sentenced that he had the right to have an attorney there. It wasn't required back then in 1955. This was uh, pre-Miranda. Yep. And uh, uh, so Neely pled guilty. He went off to prison and he had 30 years to work on appeals. And he did. And he appealed at the local level. He appealed at the state level. And finally, he appealed at the federal level. And wow. his case was actually going to be heard by the United States Supreme Court. And the Michigan Attorney General's office in 1984 was concerned that he was going to get out on a technicality, hmm. uh, all based on the fact that the judge didn't tell him that he, he could have an attorney there when he pled guilty or when he was sentenced. And so they were quite concerned. Well, just prior to that, Neely had contracted colon cancer and literally uh, just a couple months before his, his hearing before the United States Supreme Court, he passed away in prison. Wow. So, so here's a, a, a killer of two people uh, who literally uh, 30 years later was still trying to get out of prison still trying to get out of prison yeah they got nothing but resources and time time especially they, right exactly yeah. that is exactly yeah. right and yeah. you know i interviewed uh, for the first time in neely's life you know he he pled guilty to the b and e he pled guilty to the armed robbery back in the early 50s and that's what he was in prison for he never had an attorney ever until the mid 80s when he was finally appointed uh, a court appointed attorney and, and that guy is still practicing law, or he was when I wrote the book. And so I drove to Detroit and I interviewed him. And uh, he said, you know, yeah, Neely killed those people. But is he, was he the same person in 1984 that he was in 1955? And he said, I would argue that he was not, that he was not the same person. And he, and he was very respectful. Um, his attorney was very nice, very, uh, very informative, still had the, the entire case file. Uh, wow. and he shared the, the public documents that he could with me, but even though Neely had been dead for, I don't know, 30 years, 40 years, uh, 
he still had things that he could not share with me because of attorney client privilege, hmm. even though Neely was dead. Yeah. Yeah. So it was an that. interesting book. I can remember yeah. back in the in the sixties, uh, we were driving my parents and I, and I was a kid, probably seven eight years old, and we were driving up M fifty two, and I remember my parents pointing to the house and the barn, and they said that's the barn where those two elderly people were found beaten to death, and I always wow. remembered that, and so when I was looking for another book to write, I thought, hey, there's a there's a great case to write about. Yeah, and uh, well, not only that, but uh, it's, it's amazing how those. Uh, you know, especially growing up in a small town, those uh, every now, those once every now and again tragedies that happen, they just stay like, and they're just planted right every time you go past that house. It's yep, absolutely that's, yeah. that's the place. Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, you mentioned Miranda, um, but uh, you know the fifties were that time, and I can't remember which court it was, if it was the Warren Court or or who, but. That was that time where we got uh, Supreme Court rulings on wiretaps. We got Supreme Court rulings on what uh, reasonable expectation of privacy was. Uh, the um, uh, I can't remember what it was, but I believe the um, no, that might have been the seventies. But yeah, all those things, all those um, all those constitutional rights, you know, it eventually kind of culminated in, in Miranda. But um, that's when you know you know the guys would be sitting around in a in a planning meeting saying, "How do we get this guy?" and it's our, as detectives, we'd sit around and be like, yeah, that's in line with the constitution. Let's go get it. And the judge would be like, sure. Yeah. But this is the time where those, those criminal, the education of the, of the common folk caught, caught up to, to talking to the right person saying they violated your constitutional rights. Like, okay, let's, let's yeah. appeal then. And there was a lot of precedent set in that 50s, 60s era. There was, that's, that's, in, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I also, I would like to, so he set up like a wily coyote roadrunner trap for for uh, for for the old uh, old Mr. Herrick. He, he did. He's gonna drop. He's gonna drop a block on him from the top of the uh, of yeah. the barn. Yeah, a, cho- a chopping block. Wow. He was gonna push it off and 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 kill him. He said, uh, "I plan on killing him." And I, that's yeah, I, why that's why they charge him with first degree murder. Yep. Oh, there's no better way to to spell intent. The premeditation yeah. in that <laughs> exactly know? yeah man but uh that's unfortunate going from an armed robber to a to a double homicide in, in uh less than less than two days yeah but um and as you were talking about it i'm, I'm thinking you know that guy he uh he takes out um these these uh, this elderly couple uh leaves prints all over the car hitchhikes his way to using the id of his murder or of his of his uh, victim makes it to New York city and Baltimore and makes it 13 month on a run using that same ID. Yeah. He wouldn't, he wouldn't make it 500 yards today just with a basic, with the laptop sitting in a cruiser of the first responding officer. Right. You know? All the right. resources that we have on that today. Yeah. That's yeah. That's, that's why I love talking about the old cases. Cause it's a, it, the lack of the, the resources they managed to get stuff done with. I, I think it probably send most of us into paralysis at this point. Oh Yeah. 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 Back back then, you know, it was it was just good old gumshoe interviews and 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 uh, street police work. And and literally had it not been for Mr. Dosberg, uh, the the guy that owned the little store across the street, they probably never would have found Neely Buchanan. Yep. Yep. That, and that's just civic duty. It's not like, you know, it's not like they're putting government resources into it. That's Oh, exactly. Yeah. That's that's a that's a different time. It's just such a great time to write and read about. It's 
but, but I, the, the moment you said that block up in the top of the barn, I was like, that's, we gotta, we gotta roll back to that one. That's, pretty, that's yeah. He's like, yeah, I can do this. Gosh. Wow. Um, so that, yeah, that's, that's just amazing. Especially walking people through, um, taking that right to the United States Supreme court. It's, that's a, it's a, that, that what a way to tie that into just showing how, how our rights came to be. Cause I mean that, you know, Miranda that that's that was Miranda before Miranda was you know was a thing it was reminding somebody that they have a right to an attorney exactly exactly yep. yeah yeah that's that's amazing um so you uh so you pivoted um from that one uh walking that appeal to the United States Supreme Court to uh a uh, East Lansing uh, around I guess it was at Michigan State um Don Miller a, it was a, a, yeah a student he was a student uh who uh who ended up uh murdering four and attacking two others right yes yeah the don miller story um and the way that i came across this was uh back in 1978 uh i'm gonna this will give away my age now um but that's the year i graduated from high school uh and michigan state university is about uh 20 miles to the west of williamston where i lived and 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 was going to high school and at the time, uh, there were um, one, two, three, four missing women. And uh, right after I graduated, that well, I had kind of followed the, the stories of the missing women uh, because I knew that I was going to go into police work. Uh, I already uh, had my college curriculum laid out. I knew I was going to graduate, and in the fall, I was going to uh, go get my associate degree and go to the police academy and and go out and and drive fast and shoot people. Um, and so, uh, so I kind of followed the story because Don Miller, who was the prime suspect in in the four disappearances, um, was a criminal justice uh, graduate from Michigan State University, and everybody knew that he had probably killed his fiance who'd been missing for 18 months. And uh, he was suspect in, in three other disappearances or th two other disappearances and, and one of the bodies had already been found. And so uh, when he was captured, um, I just kind of, I just kind of like, okay, you know, he's off to prison and I got on with my career. Um, after I started writing, uh, I realized that uh, Don Miller, because of a plea deal that he was given uh, in exchange for the bodies, that he was going to get out of prison. He is scheduled to be released in 2031, not on parole. He will have served all of his time for the offenses that he's in prison for. Now, uh, it's important, and I'll get into the story here uh, real quick. But it's important for the listener here to understand that Don Miller is not in prison right now for murder. He is not in prison for taking the lives of, of those four women. Um, what happened was uh, Don Miller was convicted in the uh, brutal rape and attempted murder of a 14-year-old girl and the attempted murder of her 13-year-old brother. and. Uh, while he was um, being tried for those offenses, uh, 
a grand jury was impaneled uh, regarding the disappearances of the four women. And without the bodies, uh, the grand jury indicted him on two counts of second degree murder. So he's facing murder charges back in 1979. And uh, he's already in prison for the, the brutal rape and attempted murder of the two teenagers. So his attorney, knowing that, that his client is facing two counts of second degree murder, comes up with a plea deal. Wherein, if, if Don Miller would lead police to the three other missing bodies, the prosecuting attorney's office would reduce the second degree murder charges, let him plead to two counts of manslaughter instead of second degree murder. And because of Michigan law, he would serve that time at the same time that he's serving uh, for his conviction in the assault of the teenagers. Does that make sense? Yep. <clears throat> yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a balance. It's, they, it, they, it, they, it's very confusing too. Yep. And oh, so, yeah. right. and so, so basically uh, back in, 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 uh, in the late seventies, Michigan had no um, truth in sentencing. In other words, if I, if I did a crime and I was sentenced to five to 10 years today, I would have to do a minimum of five years before I would be eligible for parole. They didn't have that back then. Back in the late seventies, you got good time for this and good time for that and days knocked off. And so by the end of the 1990s, Don Miller, who got a 30 to 50 year sentence for attacking the, the two teenagers, um, he's getting ready to get out of prison. He, he figures he's getting out. And you know what? Everybody else is realizing that too. And so a group of citizens got together. Uh, I say citizens. It was police officers, attorneys, victims, corrections officers, uh, and psychiatrists. And they all were trying to come up with a way to keep Don Miller in prison because they knew he was getting out. And uh, they checked his, his prison records and discovered that three years earlier in the mid-90s, uh, he'd been caught with a garrote. And for those that don't know what a garrote is, it, it's a strangulation device. It's a purely offensive weapon. It's not a defensive weapon. Um, it's used to attack people from behind and, and, and strangle them. So he's caught with that in the mid nineties. And he's, he's uh, punished administratively through the prison system, even though it's a crime, but they get so many weapons offenses in the, in the prisons that they don't prosecute him unless there's some sort of unusual circumstances. So they took some good time away. So this, um, this uh, group of citizens and, and investigators, they, they learn about this thing that happened three years earlier. And, and Don Miller's serving his time in the UP, uh, Upper Michigan and, and the Upper Peninsula. And so our prosecuting attorney at that time goes up to Chippewa County in the UP and convinces the prosecuting attorney up there to charge Miller with possessing a dangerous weapon inside the prison three years earlier. He's convicted of that in front of a jury. And he's also convicted as a habitual offender, which allows the judge to go outside the guidelines, which would be like five years additional. The judge knowing his background sentences him to another 40 years in prison. 
40 years for a 40. prison, a, the equivalent of a prison shank. Correct. Yep. Correct. And <laughs> so in 2031, Don Miller will have served all of his time for uh, possessing. He's already served his time for the manslaughter, the two deaths, uh, and for uh, raping and attacking the two teens. That was over by the late 90s. Um, his new charge was that possessing of a strangulation device inside the prison. And so he got an additional 20 to 40 years. So in 2031, he is set to be released, a serial killer who over an 18 month period took the lives of four women um, and hid their bodies intentionally and eventually took the police to those bodies. Um, and I'll give you a little background on, on how this all played out. Um, back in uh, New Year's Eve of 1976, Don Miller was dating a young lady by the name of Martha Sue Young. And um, he, uh, and I'll, I'm gonna give you the abridged version here because um, we've got some other stuff to talk about, but uh, Don proposed to her and she accepted, it, but she still had some doubts about, uh, about how he would support her. Um, he was kind of a, a wimpy, whiny um, uh, little guy. And so on, uh, just prior to New Year's Eve, she broke off their relationship. And so Don said, hey, you keep the ring, let's remain friends. And she said, okay. So on New Year's Eve, 1976, going into 77, she had to uh, go babysit. And Don said, hey, could I come along with you? And she said, sure. So they went and babysat. They went back to, uh, to his parents' house where he lived, uh, 24 years old, 23 years old at the time, uh, where he lived. And uh, they watched a movie. They had some pizza and pop. And he said, I'm going to take Martha Sue home. And he took her out and he killed her. Uh, and he hid the body. And uh, the next morning, when her mother realized she hadn't come home, she called the Millers. Don Miller went over to her house along with his parents. They called the police. The police said, hey, Don, you know, you, you were the last person to see her. What happened? He said, I don't know. He said, I dropped her off just about two o'clock in the morning, left her sitting on the front porch of the house. She waved to me and, and I backed out and drove away. Well, the police knew immediately that, that that was a bunk story because it was 11 degrees outside with 16 mile an hour sustained winds overnight. Um, <laughs> there was no way anybody would sit out on a porch trying to look at the stars. It's a Michigan winter. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, they, under uh, a little bit of a ruse, they, they were able to get into his car that day and they found some blood. And so they suspected there was, there was more going on. Uh, he did a couple polygraphs within two or three days, failed them, uh, but they still had no body. They had no body. They had no, no idea where Martha Sue Young was. Till 10 months later, when her clothing turned up, uh, some pheasant hunters found her clothing, uh, I don't know, uh, less than 10 miles from where she lived. And uh, it was all laid out, uh, almost as if she had laid down and disappeared. Her bra was inside her sweater. Her sweater was inside her coat. Her, her uh, panties were inside her uh, pants. Um, her shoes were at the base of her pants, but there was no body. But police were certain by, by then that she was dead. 
So um, the following, that was in October, 10 months after she was reported missing. And uh, about six months later in June, a young co-ed by the name of Marita Choquette came up missing from, uh, she actually lived in the small town of Grand Ledge and that's where she was last seen alive. And so the the Grand Ledge police began a missing persons uh, report, but her car was found the next morning out at the WKAR uh, studios on the MSU campus where she worked. And so uh, Grand Ledge police was kind of working in conjunction with uh, the MSU police doing a missing person investigation. And two weeks later, her body was found uh, buried under some concrete uh, slabs uh, back in uh, some woods and she uh, had been stabbed uh, 17 or 19 times, I can't recall exactly, and her, her hands were cut off and found near her body. And so uh, the Ingham County Sheriff's Office was investigating that murder. Um, and nobody had any connection to Martha Sue Young's disappearance at that point. So the same day that Martha, or the same day that Marita Choquette, uh, the same day that her body was found, another MSU co-ed came up missing by the name of Wendy Bush. Wendy was kind of a free spirit. She loved to make new friends. She loved to talk to people. She actually would get in trouble at work for talking to people instead of doing, you know, cleaning tables in the cafeteria. So she came up missing. Well, the MSU police, they had uh, the Marita Choquette thing they were kind of working on with Ingham County Sheriff's Office. And now they had Wendy Bush missing, but they weren't really convinced that that there was foul play involved, although she did leave her medication and some money in her dorm. Um, About six weeks later, while they're working on those two investigations, you you now have uh, Marita Choquette's body who's been found. Martha Sue Young is still missing. Wendy Bush is still missing. And a school teacher in Lansing who's walking to her house comes up missing. And... Uh, they found her glasses in the area where she was last seen. Um, a, a woman saw something and uh, she actually had to be hypnotized to bring it out. What she saw was uh, Don Miller and Christine Stewart wrestling, Christine Stewart trying to get away, Don Miller shoving her into the car and grabbing a knife and thrusting it into the car three times. Um, and she was even able to describe under hypnosis blood dripping off the knife. So, um, so it was two days later when Don Miller goes out, uh, still hasn't been caught. Christine Stewart's now missing three missing women plus Marita Choquette's body. Police are concerned. Now they've got a serial killer, uh, on the loose. And two days after, uh, Christine Stewart comes up missing, uh, a young lady, 14-year-old girl by the name of Lisa Gilbert. She's an adult now, and uh, she freely talks about this. Um, she was very supportive of the book. Uh, she and Randy live in a, a brand new house uh, that her dad had just built. And every day, because her parents in the 70s, her parents go to work, they leave the garage door mm-hmm. open, they hang out and do teenager stuff. Randy's out back fishing um, at a little pond out in, uh, back in the woods. Um, Lisa's in the house by herself. Uh, they have to call their stepmother every day at three o'clock and check in with her. Um, and so Lisa leaves the house 
She goes out back. She yells for Randy. Randy doesn't hear her. She comes back around the house. There's a brown car in her driveway. She doesn't think a thing of it. She thinks it's a, a contractor who's come back to, you know, fix little things in the house because they've had contractors doing that. So she goes in the garage. Don Miller walks uh, from the house into the garage and says, hey, uh, what time's your dad get home? She says, oh, about six o'clock. Um, oh, uh, can you write this number down um, so he can give me a call? Sure. Lisa goes back in the house. Miller follows her in, pulls a knife, takes her to the, her parents' bedroom, rapes her, and is literally in the process of strangling her with her own belt. Now, she's nude. Her hands are tied behind her back. She's got a gag in her mouth. He's on her back, strangling her with her own belt. And at the, he pulls so tight, just before she loses consciousness, that belt snaps into two two pieces. And at that exact moment, Randy walks into the house. Now, Randy has no idea what's going on. He sees the brown car, thinks it's a contractor. Don Miller hears him coming in. So he leaves Lisa and he turns his attention to Randy. Uh, he forces Randy up to his bedroom, forces him down on the floor, starts to cut his throat with a knife. Randy's a wiry 13-year-old, scared to death, reaches up, was able to grab the knife and throw it under the bed. So Miller chokes him out with his bare hands. Randy loses consciousness, wakes up like, I don't know, a couple minutes later, he's got two stab wounds to his chest. Miller had retrieved the knife after choking him out and then stabbed him twice in the chest. While this is all going on, Lisa is able to escape the house naked, 14 years old, with her hands tied behind her back with nylons, runs out into traffic screaming for help. And uh, a, a fire chief driving by and a, and a good Samaritan both stop. Uh, they get Lisa in, in the fire chief's car. The good Samaritan confronts Miller as he's coming out of the house and gets his license number as he speeds off. And Miller's taken into custody uh, within the next hour. So that, in a nutshell, there's a, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, different parts to that to that whole story. Um, but Peter Hauk was the prosecuting attorney at the time, and when I interviewed him for the book, Peter told me he said, "You know, uh, on January first, nineteen seventy-seven, at two a.m., I was out celebrating getting elected." The, as the new prosecutor for Ingham County. And he said, I ran my uh, campaign on doing away with plea bargaining. And he said, I had no idea that two years wow. later, I would have to make a deal with the devil. <laughs> and that's wow. what he had to do in order to find the bodies. Yeah. And, uh, and that uh, the idea of a plea deal is, is thanks to TV more often than not is just something everybody just accepts, but there's a, in this particular one, that's a, you know, the manslaughter beef that doesn't carry any intent with it. That manslaughter is meant, and at least in most jurisdictions, as the you know popped your top, lost your mind at a bar, and ended up going too far in a, in a fight. Um, exactly. What you describe is a lot of premeditation, a lot of organization, and a hunting tactic uh, against four to six people at this point. 
right. um, with the desecration and the positioning and all of, all of that stuff that goes completely to intent premeditation, all the things that completely dismiss the manslaughter, which allows allows him the the ability to potentially be back walking the streets, which um, I don't would that be the first time a serial killer has actually been released? <laughs> I, and I don't know if you know that or not. You know, that's a great question. Uh, I, I know murderers have been released. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And there's there's uh, some thought that uh, when Don Miller gets out in nine years, that, you know, he'll be in his mid-70s. And a lot of people think, oh, he won't be a danger. Well, let me tell you something. He's already shown his desire for teenage girls. Uh, and I think that even at 76, he's still a danger. And the, the majority of the, the professional people, law enforcement, attorneys, um, they're convinced that Don Miller will kill again. They're absolutely convinced that he will kill again. Yeah, and there so, is. I mean, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, um, when I wrote this book, when I decided on this case, uh, I was able to make contact with Martha Sue Young's um, sister. And uh, she doesn't live in the area anymore, but we talked by phone. And she said, before I answer any questions, she says, I want to know why you're writing the book. And I said, I'll tell you why. and And I hadn't thought about it until she asked that question. And it was right there. People have forgotten who Don Miller is. People have forgotten what Don Miller did. And people need to know that Don Miller is getting out of prison in nine years. Yep. And, and. Uh, she said, I'll, I'll answer anything you want. Now, uh, as an extra added bonus to this whole thing, um, I was able to uh, develop a friendship with Don Miller's dad uh, through his attorney, who I knew. Um, actually, this book is written from a, a really unique perspective because uh, as, I, as I started doing my research, I realized that I knew probably 95% of the people involved in this case friends that I had made over the years and didn't even realize they were involved in this case um, after 30 years in law enforcement. And so uh, that's how I knew uh, Don Miller's attorney. Um, He was a friend of mine. I had done some private work for him. And so he introduced me to Don Miller's dad. And uh, Gene was an elderly man who knew that his son was guilty, but felt that he was sick back then and felt that he's been um, rehabilitated. And so I told him, I said, Gene, I said, um, when, just so you know, I'm going to be right up front with you. Uh, I'm writing this book from the beginning to the end, and I'm not making any judgment about Don. I'm, you know, I'm just writing the book. And he said, okay, that's fair enough. Uh, and he called me up one day, Gene did. And he said, um, I could tell he'd been crying. And he said, uh, you know, um, I'm having a hard time reading your book. And I said, well, I'm sure you are, Gene. And he said, I didn't know half the stuff that that you put in this book. And I said, I'm sure you didn't, Gene. And he said, well, I just wanted to tell you, you did a good job. Now that came from the serial killer's dad. Uh, He arranged for Don to write me a letter. And Don uh, did, uh, which my wife was less than pleased about. And as a quick side note, um, if, if anyone wants to know how to start a letter to a serial killer, I will just say that you start it with someone else's return address. 
Um, <laughs> a PO box. <laughs> yeah, a PO box. So, so I got uh, this letter from Don, and uh, he described what he was going through in the late seventies, uh, and he said, "You can put this in your book." And so I did. It's it's uh, it, as a postscript in the book, and it's it's word for word exactly how he wrote it, and he talks about how uh, he had this relationship with Martha, and and she wouldn't talk about their problems. She wouldn't open up. Uh, basically, uh, it was her fault that I, that I murdered her. That's how I read it. Uh, a lot of victim shaming. Um, and then he just says uh, quite bluntly, and then I took the lives of four other, or three other women. Never once in that letter or in any other letter does he mention why he was in prison in the first place, and that's for raping Lisa Gilbert and trying to kill her and Randy. I think that uh, uh, speaks volumes to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, a police psychologist, but I did sleep at a Holiday Inn Express once. So, yeah, that's that's not the verbiage of a rehabilitated man. That's that's no. uh, that's uh, that's no. like carrying a Bible into your parole board meeting and then tossing it well, the moment you walk out. Well, it's funny you should say that because everything that Don does, every conversation he has. Every writing that he does all have biblical uh, references, um, uh, biblical quotes, uh, things like that. And he's always been that way from before the murders up until today uh, for 40 some years. Everything that he writes has a biblical quote with it. Hmm. That, that's something worth uh, diving into. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was mentioned that... Uh, uh, he blamed uh, his uh, ex-fiance for not being, I guess, not being Christian enough or not that like he was really, really conservative, like deep in like. Uh, oh, absolutely. From, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, th and that it's, it was God's will that they be married. Yes. God, that's, that's right. God's yes. will. Yeah. So yeah. God's will is everything he agrees with. Yes, that's, that's right. correct. Yep. So um, it, it's interesting. Um, the letters are, are interesting to read. I've actually gotten like six of them. Uh, and only well, I take I say the, the last one I got, uh, a couple of them were just, hey, I'm going to write you a letter. And then I wrote him back a letter saying, hey, thanks for the, the letter describing what, what you were going through. I'm going to put it as a postscript in the book. And he said, yeah, that sounds good. And then uh, I, I, I told him that, you know, I, I kind of had developed this friendship with his dad. And he said, well, you're very kind. Um, you know, you're, you're a good man and for keeping an eye on my dad and stuff like that. So, uh, and that was the end of it. And then about six, eight weeks ago, I got an unsolicited letter from him. And uh, he told me that uh, his dad had passed away, which I didn't know. Uh, and uh, he said, my dad was disappointed in you. Um, he thought you were gonna give me a fair shake. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, a fair shake to a serial killer? Yeah. No, I told your dad I was going to write the story from the beginning to the end, and that's what I did. Uh, and, as a and I didn't respond to this letter, by the way. Uh, this is what I'm just thinking. Uh, I'm sure that, that his dad wasn't as disappointed in me as he was when he found out that his son was a serial killer, you know, 40-some years ago. So... I, you know, his dad called me up and, and we talked and, and 
and we had lunch together. Um, I, I was going up to uh, Mackinac Island uh, researching my next book. I stopped, his dad lived in Indian River. I stopped and had lunch with his dad. I bought his dad lunch and we had a great conversation. Um, so I, I think that, that Don, um, well, you know, obviously he's not trustworthy. Uh, I think he's blowing smoke. Yeah, that sounded like a, a, a shot just to try and try and get some uh, response. You know, like we said in the beginning, not, they've got nothing but time. So right. what, what else are they going to do to entertain themselves and try and throw some barbs? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So but that's that, the Don Miller story. And, and uh, people need to remember that, uh, well, it's a good, it's a good read right now. Um, there's been a lot of press about it locally mm -hmm. uh, because he is going to get out. Um, and, uh, I hope that people, you know, in nine years when, when he's released, remember this, that, that they, they still have that book handy, um, so that they don't forget who he is and what he did. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's nothing we can do about, you know, statute and, and, you know, how the, how the lines are written when it comes to sentencing and, and that's just the system being the system, but that doesn't mean that he has to come out and the community has to be accepting of that, that there's still a community standard, you know, absolutely. The court, court says one thing, the society you live in says another. Yeah. Yep. And that it, uh, society doesn't have to forgive what the court system does. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that, you, you know, that, that they don't understand because they they're younger than, than I am. You know, when, when I say, well, you know, uh, Don Miller's up for parole again and they're, they're like, Oh, how can that be? He's a serial killer. Um, they don't understand what went on back, uh, you know, in the late seventies and, and the plea deal that was made um, in exchange for those bodies so that those families could have closure. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it seems like it's not often. And I, I again, I, I'll, I'll blame TV because that's where most people get their education, but um, the plea deal people think puts the, uh, you know, puts a trial that, uh, you know, makes that makes everything nice and neat, but they don't forget that that often means there's a less of a sentence. And in this case, there's a less of a culpability attached to those charges beside, you know, between premeditated murder and manslaughter. There's a whole lot of, whole lot of culpability that doesn't, that was never addressed. Right. Right. Yep. And, and Randy Gilbert, uh, he and I, and Lisa, his sister have become very good friends. And uh, Randy and I actually speak together uh, to high school classes uh, about the case. And uh, he's and and he tells the uh, everybody he speaks to. He said, you know, I feel like I'm the one that got the life sentence because yeah. I have to go before the parole board. Um, and actually, in, in 2018, uh, there was some uh, revisions in the law, and that allowed Miller because they give you a numerical score in prison, and uh, if you fall within the the certain um, parameters, uh, you were allowed a parole hearing every year or a parole interview every oh, wow. year. So every year since 2018, Randy had to relive that day. And, and all the other victims' families had to relive that day or, or those, those murders. And we've just, uh, I say we, I don't, I, I don't mean me, uh, Michigan, uh, the governor just signed a law uh, which um, changes that and under certain circumstances, given um, uh, like Miller's background, he just had a parole hearing on April 11th. He would be scheduled for one next year, but uh, under the new law, the parole board uh, will be allowed to um, 
change that back to uh, five years, every five years, if he's not granted parole for the most recent interview, which we're praying that he's not. Yeah. Uh, and because that'll come out uh, this month sometime. Wow. And it's, uh, but I mean, uh, we, and I've discussed this before, but the, the victim, victim advocacy laws were one of the few times I think laws are written with the best intentions to ensure victims have, you know, their representatives as much as the subjects uh, have their rights guaranteed to them. But like you just said, I mean, that kid's got to, he's got to go back to being 13 years old and being stabbed by a stranger once a year, annually, he has to yeah. do this. Yeah. It, that's, that's not something that is tenable you know that's just not a sustainable thing for for a person to be able to to uh to meet every year you know much less uh mom and dad having to relive losing their their child you know oh sure sure that's yeah, written with the best intentions but the uh, uh the second level um consequences i it, you know i think it took a while for them to be seen you know that that this is a painful thing for those people you know yes yeah. so but, but uh so yeah i guess it's it's one of those balances but but um, yeah, the the your three books. I mean, I, I feel like we could probably talk until midnight right now. You know, oh, digging yeah. into these things. You know, there's so much to talk about. Um, but uh, but I, I, you know, I'm not going to keep you uh, too long. But I did want to talk about your methodology, and I think it's great that we waited until we got to discuss each one of your books because, I mean, it, the the 1897 murder uh, just screams of of dusty old archives. Um, but the uh, the the evolution of your techniques, I would love to hear the contrast between, you know, the, the Miller case, we, your contemporaries worked on. Uh, uh, you, uh, you've mentioned before uh, that uh, one of the detectives you worked with um, actually took a, took a crack at, at Miller and, and unfortunately it's, it didn't go his way, but I don't think it was the detective's fault. Um, but uh, to be able to talk to all those people to, to, can you contrast or elaborate on you know, digging through the archives for a centuries old case and then actually talking to your contemporaries when you're working on the, on the new one. Oh, sure. Yeah. The, the, uh, to hell I must go book, uh, uh, set in 1897. Uh, think about what, what resources I had to look up. Um, I, I, I tried to look up, um, uh, old police files, um, maybe stuck away somewhere in Williamston. Um, there was none. Um, I, I had, you know, a bunch of newspapers. Um, I would go to the state library and, and research uh, using their um, microfilm machines, looking at um, newspapers from across the country about it because it made national, national headlines because it was so gruesome. But there wasn't, a, there wasn't a whole lot out there. Um, and so uh, I, on a whim, I checked the, the uh, archives of Michigan and I, and I found that they did have the court file, but that was only eight pages, eight or 12 wow. pages. Um, but, but with that being said, you know, I, I actually had a handwritten document from my great, great grandfather in there that, that I touched. Uh, and I say this every time I'm, I talk about it, uh, I really did feel like Indiana Jones. Uh, yeah, I felt I, I, like, yeah. Oh my God. You That'd know, be great. I put That'd my be hand great on find. this. Yeah, I put my hand <laughs> on his signature and it, it was just like uh, unbelievable. Um, and so, uh, so that's what I had there uh, with, um, I'm trying to remember uh, with a Slayer Waits exactly what I had uh, from that. I, I, I went to the uh, archives hoping that I would find 
one of the detectives old files um, that was involved in the case. Uh, I, I didn't have it. Um, I was able to get um, some police reports um, and some old crime scene photos. Uh, they still wow. had the crime scene photos. And, and some of those are in the book, uh, which is, was kind of cool. Um, I like to put photos in. Uh, I'm a photo guy. Uh, I think it, it, it makes it come to life for people. Um, and so, uh, and, and then some of the files I got for that book also, I got from um, Neely's attorney, um, who I interviewed down in Detroit. So uh, there wasn't a lot of stuff there. It was uh, newspapers and what I could get from his attorney and the, and the crime scene photos. And then when I got to the Miller case, uh, I, I did a FOIA request um, to the Eaton County Prosecuting Attorney's Office. And I knew everybody up there. Uh, so I got their file. And um, I also uh, am very good friends with uh, the original prosecutor that put Don Miller in prison. Uh, for the rape of Lisa and, and the attempted murder of her and Randy. Uh, that prosecutor went into private practice later in life. Uh, we've been friends for 40 years now. And um, he said, I still have my whole entire file. And he gave wow. it to me. So I didn't have to pay any FOIA fees. Um, mm -hmm. And it had everything in it. Um, it had uh, just everything. It had crime scene photos. It had uh, interviews. It had... Uh, transcripts. And then there was another friend uh, who was uh, used to be an assistant prosecutor and worked on the case. Uh, he still had his entire file, which he shared with me. Um, transcripts of, of the preliminary examination where they bound him over for the on the second degree murder charges without the bodies. Um, all that stuff. And, and it was literally, I had, when the manuscript was done, and I sent it to uh, my agent, uh, and she got me a publisher. Um, the, the editor got a hold of it and they sent it back to me and they said, you got to pare some of this down. It was over 600 pages, <laughs> 600 pages. And, uh, and so I did. And, uh, I like to say now, um, people ask, Hey, did you write a letter to the parole board? You know, when, when Miller was up for parole, I said, yeah, it's 484 pages. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's, that's because exactly every one right. of those parole board yeah. members got a copy of my book. They <laughs> yeah. did. They yeah. did. Very detailed, very detailed yeah. letter, letter of intent. <laughs> so so uh, as I go on, um, and I'll give you an example of, of how it's developed, um, my methodology, uh, because I, I have a new book. Uh, the manuscript is done. It's with my agent. Um, and I check my email 50 times a day, hoping to hear back from them, That's but right. it involves a, an unsolved murder in Northern Michigan. And I sent a FOIA request to the state police, um, for a 60 year old file. And, you know, I expected oh, that, you know, they'll, you know, maybe they'll want some money up front. So, uh, they called me one day, which was a little unusual, I thought. And she said, yeah, I'm with the state police and we got your FOIA request. And I'm like, yes. And she said, uh, she said, well, we like to have a little money up front, you know, typically half, uh, you know, in good faith, because we're going to spend some time on this. And, and I said, oh, yeah, I understand. What, what do you want? Two, $300? Is that going to be the total? She goes, 
Well, it's looking more like about 2,500. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, that's exactly what I said. I said, uh, can I think about this? She said, sure. So uh, I called her back and I said, well, this is important to me. So um, I, I sent her half the money and, and I got the, the entire file. It was 2000 pages. Um, and that is my next book. And that in, in that particular case, because there was just a, a wealth of information, uh, but they had uh, redacted every name in that police report. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> and so fortunately, uh, I have a subscription to newspapers.com. So I look up the murder and I'm able to piece together from the police reports and from the newspaper articles that identify all these people uh, involved in the case. I'm a- able to to identify names and places and things like that. But I had to take 2000 pages of police reports and I had to uh, categorize in, in a spreadsheet, okay, each page, what is, what's this page, uh, like uh, page 27 through page 53 um, deals with what? And so I, I had to categorize everything, which took a bunch of time before I could even delve into the case itself, which yeah. was very helpful. It was very helpful to do that because in the end, uh, when the editor looked at, at, the, uh, at the manuscript, she'd say, well, uh, I don't think you mentioned this here. You, ne- you need to check back and, and uh, for continuity reasons. And so I was able to go back to that spreadsheet and find what I was looking for really quick. Yeah, uh, it was no, exactly like where it is. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. That, so I've, I've gone from, from digging into the, an 1897 murder uh, where I had, you know, uh, eight pages of original transcripts and some old newspaper articles to the entire 2000 page police report for this upcoming book. Uh, and, and I'm really excited about it. I think it, I think it'll be the best yet of, of the four. It, uh, it sounds like you're doing trial prep all over again. Is what uh, it sounds yeah, like. sort of. Sort <laughs> yeah. of. Uh, and yeah. the interesting part about this one, because it's a 60 year old cold case and, and I don't want to give too much away, but I do identify a possible suspect at the end of the book. Uh, who is oh, still excellent. alive and is still in prison uh, and is a serial killer. That is uh, excellent. When, uh, when can we expect that one? Well, I'm hoping sometime this year. Uh, my, like I said, my agent has it. Um, they have the manuscript. Um, and one thing I found, uh, my first two books, I, I uh, self-published. And my, uh, my book about Don Miller, I actually got an agent and a, and a publisher. And so uh, the one thing I found, if you're going to self-publish, you could get your books out in, literally in eight to 12 weeks, you know, if you want to do a lot of the work yourself. Um, but if you take the time to go uh, uh, and to get an agent and get a publisher and do the research on all that, uh, that's a whole nother, uh, that could be a podcast in itself, a continuing podcast. It is so labor intensive. And, and there's, it's really, really, um, it's complicated. It really is. Um, yep. But uh, it's worth it to me. It's worth yeah. it. And, and, it, uh, and nobody tells you up front that uh, you need the uh, like height of a rhino to prepare for all the rejection you're going to face. Oh, exactly. <laughs> when you yeah. get in this game, when you get in this game, not only uh, 
not only are you going to get one star reviews, but you're going to have about 70 people tell you you're not good enough before you find a publisher. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 It, it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't uh, fit yeah. us. Uh, yeah. You're, you got potential, but not for us. I don't know who, yeah. but not, not yeah. me. <laughs> I actually got uh, two letters uh, offering representation. And, and when I did my research um, to, to figure out how to do this, because I didn't have anybody telling me, hey, do this, do that. I had to research it all. Uh, the one guy um, wrote to me and, and I, I don't even remember what his name was, but his email was like Rod with a small R, no comma, like three sentences. It was almost like he was drunk when he wrote it. I, I'd like to represent you. Give me a call. And I was nah. like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, is this, this is how it happens. And a week later, well, I researched, well, how do you put them off? So I told him, I said, well, we're going on vacation, which we were. I said, I'll get back with you. So in the meantime, I got a second letter uh, from an agent in New York, and it was a formal business letter. Uh, everything was perfect in it. This is exactly what we're looking for. Um, uh, you know, it just, it was very, very professional. And, and it was a no brainer for me. I'm like, yeah, I, I know who I'm going with. So I let yeah. the other guy know. I said, hey, hey uh, I think I'm going to turn you down. So he sends me back an email. Why? <laughs> just a word. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll be honest with him. Uh, I'm going to go with a, a different agent. And, and he was very kind. You know, he, he wasn't a drunk. Uh, don't misunderstand me. It just came across that way. Uh, but he said in his last email, he said, well, he said, I'm disappointed. That's too bad. He said, but if that deal falls through, please let me know because I, I, I really enjoyed your, your uh, book proposal and I really would like to represent you. And I thought that was very nice. Yeah. Well, why yeah. didn't you lead with that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Could you put that in the form of a business letter? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You yeah. go to templates.com. They'll let you know how to do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I uh, I appreciate you uh, you talking to me tonight, and I I've kept you for a long time, so I'm I'll uh, I'll let you go. Um, before I do though, um, since you know I was in the law enforcement game for a while, you 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 did 30 years. Um, I know some of the people who listen to this. Uh, if you had one piece of advice for a rookie going on the street today, what would it be? For a rookie? Uh, yeah, rookie's first day. What's the first thing you're gonna tell him? Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question because that's an ambush sorry <laughs> yeah that uh you know law enforcement has changed so much uh and and i got certified actually my first day in the police academy was the day that president reagan was shot oh wow uh, yeah that was my first day 1981 uh march 30th 1981 and so uh things have changed so dramatically um i i guess I don't know. It, there's so many things that you, that you want to tell them. You, you almost want to say, trust no one uh, <laughs> in today's society. Um, but you can't tell them that because that's not what police work is about. Yep. Um, uh, gosh. Don't ever that's... let your guard down in today's world. Don't ever let your guard down. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, and uh, it's a service industry, but you got to have 360 surveillance every place you go, <laughs> every place, every place. Yep. And 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 I've been retired for 10 years, and things have changed so dramatically just in the in the last 10 years. Uh, everything is on camera. 
um, we were just starting into uh, body camera stuff um, just before I retired. So I never had to wear a body camera. I wouldn't even carry a taser. Uh, I said, look, you didn't have to shoot me when you hired me. You know, you didn't have to shoot me with a gun. Why do you want to tase me? Um, just to let me know what it feels like. No, yep. I'm not carrying a taser. Yeah, so. I, don't, I don't want to be up close in person with lightning. <laughs> I yeah, never did exactly. either. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, but yeah, thank you. I, I'm sorry for the ambush, but, uh, with, with your kind of experience, I wanted, I, I, I wanted to ask the question. So, oh sure. Um, but, uh, thank you again. I, I, uh, I, like I said, I, I, I downloaded all three and, but I just started jumping back and forth to try and to try and get a feel for all of them. So I get, I get to, now I get to go back and focus and finish each one after talking to you. Oh, I, good. I'm really, good. I'm really looking forward to it. Good. Um, so yeah, uh, I, um, all three of them to, to how I must go um a slayer waits and killing women best place to find them is amazon barnes and noble amazon barnes and noble schulers actually any place you can buy a book they can order it for you uh any yep. of your favorite small bookstores um in mid michigan area here um most of the small bookstores i think probably have one or two copies uh, there's a great new bookstore in lansing it's called uh dead time stories it's all true Ooh, crime nice. it's all true crime and uh she has book signings up there. Um, uh, she's a big supporter of mine. Uh, Jen Carpenter's her name. I'll give her a little shout out here because it's such a great bookstore. It really has become a destination. People come to Lansing to go to Dead Time Stories because it's a true crime bookstore. Um, and that's all she carries. Yeah, it's a great little store. Uh, but any place you can buy books, you can find, uh, they can order them. Uh, Amazon obviously is, uh, you won't find a, a signed copy through Amazon. Um, but I, I typically tell people if, if you want a, a copy and don't want to wait for it, that's the place to get it. Um, you can get it, uh, 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 killing women in audio. That's only 13 hours, uh, long if you're going on a long trip. And I've had uh, friends of mine say, Hey, I downloaded your audio book because we're going, we're driving to Florida and, and, uh, they loved it. Um, oh, yeah. There's a, a unique uh, bookstore in mid Michigan or a unique um, donut store. Uh, it's called Cops and Donuts uh, and it's in Claire, <laughs> Michigan. And uh, they carry my books there uh, because uh, they carry books that are written by cops. Um, nice. and, and it's owned by cops. It's a donut store <laughs> that's owned by uh, some cops and it's really unique. It's become a, a, a tourist destination. So just leaned into leaned into the uh, stereotype and made it an icon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. yep. They did. N nice. And I see uh, you're on uh, you're on all the all the socials, um, LinkedIn, IG, Facebook, uh, Snapchat. Um, is your handle consistent through them or? Uh, pretty much. Um, mm -hmm. If you search my name uh, or or uh, I use Rod Sadler author a lot. Um, okay. RMS author, I think maybe on Twitter. Um, I don't do LinkedIn uh, very much at all. Um, I just, I, I've never felt comfortable doing that. Um, it's just not, uh, it's not user friendly for me. Uh, so yeah. I don't get into that much, but uh, the other ones, yeah, I'm, I'm out there and, and uh, I try, I try to devote it to fun stuff uh, and my books. So. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again. And now I, I hope you give me a call when the new one comes out. This has been a lot of fun. I'm, I feel like we could probably be talking when the sun comes up tomorrow. Oh, but, we uh, could. We could. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yep. So uh, thank you uh, very much. And everybody, thank you for uh, thank you for listening. And again, um, all of Rod's books are available at a variety of places, wherever your favorite place is to buy a book. 
um blood red ivory um brand new on the audio is uh, is going strong i'm getting fantastic uh comments from everybody so thank you very much and uh, i can't wait to talk to you again next week